So good morning to you all once again, and grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you once again for your prayers uh, during this past week. As I said before, I do feel better this morning. Glad to be back in the pulpit with you, sharing from God's Word. Last week, we spent some time in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and we saw Peter teach us four things. We saw that God has saved us through a new birth, not a new physical birth, but a spiritual birth into faith in Jesus Christ. We saw Peter teach us that we now have a, a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, and we sang about that this morning, right, that Jesus is indeed our living hope. We talked about the eternal inheritance that is guaranteed to the believer in Christ, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And we saw that God will keep us or shield us until the time of Christ's return. And we saw that just as Peter was thankful for these things, that we can be thankful for these as well. We're going to continue on this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to focus on, well, just the next three verses. It seems like I'm taking these in small chunks, but that's okay. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 9 this morning. And in these verses, we will see Peter tell his listeners that they can rejoice in the things that he's just taught them about, even though they're going through all kinds of trials and troubles in their lives. They can rejoice in their trials because their faith he says, will be refined by going through these trials. As they persevere through them, their faith will be proved genuine and will bring glory, honor, and praise to Christ. Peter will teach us that even through the trials of life, we can have great joy because we are receiving the goal of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Why don't we turn there together this morning? Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I invite you to please stand with me as you're able for the reading from God's Word. Again, this morning I'm just reading three verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Reading in Jesus' name. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 857. Beginning in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oh, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for <coughs> that inexpressible and glorious joy we can have through faith in you. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Peter to write these words to the early Christian church, but also to us, Lord. As we look at them this morning, may you open up our hearts and our minds, our ears, Lord, to hear, our hearts to understand. And as always, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> How many of you have ever watched the TV show Survivor? Not many. A few of you. A few of you. Okay. 
I've maybe seen a couple of episodes, and it's over 23 years that it's been on TV. When you tune into the show, they make it seem like they dump these 16 people out in the middle of nowhere with no food or water, and they have to figure out a way to survive all on their own. But that's not entirely true. They always give them a supply of water to get started, as well as a supply of canned goods and some rice to eat. They also give them a first aid kit that has bandages and, and ointments and personal items and other things that they can use. And when you think about it, they're never really alone because, well, there's the camera crew that's there 24-7 recording everything that's going on. So despite the appearance that these people are, are left to just fend for themselves, the people running the show have given them a few provisions to help them survive. And we all need certain provisions in order to survive, don't we? We need food, we need water, we need air, and we need light to survive. It's been said that man can live for about 40 days without food. Remember when Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before he was tempted by Satan. We can survive for somewhere between three to five days without water, depending on our circumstances. And again, depending on our circumstances, we can survive for about three to five minutes without air. We also need light, right? Our bodies were not created to live in total darkness. We need light to survive as well. I find it really interesting then that Jesus in his word tells us that he is the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the breath of life. And he is the light of the world. The four basic things we need to survive are all found in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that's really what Peter is telling his listeners here, that no matter what they may be going through, God will provide what they need to survive so that they will receive the goal of their faith, which is the salvation of their souls. Now, when we think of God providing for our needs, a lot of times we tend to get caught up in the material or the, the monetary aspects of God's provisions. How many of you are familiar with the name Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor is a missionary to China. Well, Hudson Taylor had complete trust in God's faithfulness and God's provision. Listen to some words he wrote in his journal. He said, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. And then he said this, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Let me say that again. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. See, that's a great thought for us as we're going to gather together a little later today to discuss God's work and see how he has supplied for his church here through this previous year. And I know that there are some of you here today who are facing some, well, some very difficult times in your lives right now. Sometimes you don't know how you can survive these trying times. Well, Peter's message applies to you today as well. 
God has provided provisions for you to survive life and all of its trials and all of its challenges. And those provisions actually begin with what we talked about last week. Just going back to review for a minute here, one of the main thrusts of Peter's teaching in this letter is that we can have hope. We can have hope in the midst of all of the trials of life. And this hope is not just some, some kind of empty hope, like I, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow so I can go golfing. No, I'm not going golfing tomorrow, but just that's, you know. Peter calls this hope a living hope. And we can have a living hope because Jesus defeated death and he defeated the grave and he is still alive today. Right? We talked about this last week, that there is no resurrection. We have no faith and we have no hope. But because Jesus rose from the grave, we have a living hope through his resurrection. We have a hope that we will be raised to life with Christ one day when we receive the goal of our faith, which again is the salvation of our souls. Peter is one who was able to testify to this on a firsthand basis. Peter saw the empty tomb with his own eyes. He saw Jesus had been raised. Peter was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Our hope for eternal life rests in Christ, and it is a living hope because Christ himself is alive. So the first thing that the Lord provides for us is that living hope. And as we learned last week, the second thing he gives us is that promised eternal inheritance. So no matter what we may lose in this life, whether it's riches or homes or, or loved ones or our own lives, we will gain a much greater inheritance in heaven one day with the Lord. And Peter tells us that no one can take away that inheritance. As a Christian, you are a member of God's family and an heir, an heir to the inheritance that God has kept just for you. And it is these thoughts that lead us into our passage for this morning. In verse 6, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. He's saying that the first century Christians, and we as well, can rejoice because we have this living hope and we have this promised inheritance. But Peter puts our rejoicing in a little different context here, doesn't he? He says you can rejoice Though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now what kinds of trials could Peter be referring to here? Well, if we go back to the first week in that introductory sermon on Peter 1, we'll remember that Peter was writing to believers in Christ who were scattered throughout Asia Minor or the area that we now know as modern-day Turkey. And he had addressed them as God's elect strangers in the world. First of all, why would he call them strangers in the world? Well, the world they lived in was a very pagan world. Okay? This was not Jewish territory. This was Gentile country. And the Gentiles had all different kinds of different religions and all different gods. If you remember back to our study on Moses that we did last year, we saw that the Egyptians had a god for just about everything, right? They had a sun god, they had a, a river god, they had a fertility god, they had a god for wine, they had a god for grain, they had a god for the moon, you name it, they had a god for it. 
And these Gentile territories were just the same. They were very pagan in their worship of many different gods, and their worship would have included many things that, that would not be right or good in the sight of the Lord. So these new followers of Christ, these new Christians, didn't fit in with the people that surrounded them anymore. Many of them had once lived their lives worshiping these other gods, but now they couldn't because their allegiance was to Christ and to Christ alone. Their friends and neighbors that they used to worship with would maybe invite them over for a meal or, or a party, the things that they used to just revel in doing, right? But now they had to say, no, we, we can't do that any longer. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. We can't go to your festivals anymore. We can't indulge in the things that you still indulge in that we used to do. So they literally became strangers in their own towns, outcasts because of their faith. And this is where their trials first began. The people they used to share life with now persecuted them because of their faith in Christ. These new believers had maybe held certain jobs that they couldn't continue doing because of their faith. Maybe someone had been a metal worker. And part of his job had been to create silver idols for use in the temple worship of Artemis or Helena or Dionysus or any of these other gods. But after coming to faith in Christ, well, they couldn't do that anymore. Maybe some of them had actually worked at the pagan temples and now realized how wrong that would be and how it would hurt their witness if they continued, so they had to find some other type of employment. But who was going to hire them? So they were looked down upon, probably made fun of, because they chose to worship just one God, and their livelihood was threatened. This was also during the time when the Roman Empire was in control of this whole region. And this letter was written during the time that Nero was the emperor to Rome. And Nero, for whatever reasons, really, really had it in for the Christians. He didn't like the Christians, and he blamed them for everything wrong that was going on in the world. There was great persecution under Nero for the early Christian church. So these are just some of the trials that Peter mentions that these new Christians are going through, and we're going to see Peter mention these trials again and again and again throughout these two letters. But he goes on in verse 7 to tell them that these trials have come so that their faith will be refined, so that they'll grow in their faith, that their faith will be genuine and will bring the end result of praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, if they will persevere through these times of trial. And Peter tells us that our faith is of greater worth than gold. He says it's valuable, it's precious. Our faith in Christ is really what sustains us through our lives, and especially when we're going through times of trial. James teaches us the exact same lesson in James 1, verses 2 through 12. That's why I had that read this morning as our scripture reading. That the testing of our faith develops perseverance, and that there's a reason for the trials that we're going through. So Peter compares our faith to gold. And he does it in the way that, that, that gold in the fire 
The fire doesn't destroy the gold, but it refines it. The fire removes those impurities from it. And in the same way, our faith, when it's put to the fire during times of trial and and times of of troubles, that, that our faith is then refined and the impurities are removed from our faith and our faith is made stronger. Times of trials and suffering strengthen our faith when we realize that we can't depend on ourselves and we learn to turn to God and trust in him for what we need to get through. I'm going to share with you a story this morning, a story of a man named David, and this is not the David from the Old Testament. This man, David, his life is actually an awesome picture of God using difficulties for good. During the Vietnam War, David went through some very rigorous training to become part of one of those ultra-elite special forces team that the Navy used on those dangerous search-and-destroy and rescue missions. During a nighttime raid on an enemy stronghold, David experienced the greatest trial of his life. When he and his men were pinned down by enemy machine gun fire, he pulled a, a phosphorus grenade from his belt And he stood up to throw it, but as he pulled it back to get ready to throw it, a bullet hit the grenade in his hand, and it exploded right next to his ear. He shares that he was lying, as he was lying on his side on the bank of a very muddy river, he actually watched part of his face float by. His entire face and shoulder had caught on fire as the phosphorus from that grenade had embedded itself in his body, and it, came, it came, started on fire as that phosphorus came into contact with the air. David felt like he was going to die, but miraculously he didn't. He was pulled from the water by his fellow soldiers. He was flown directly to Saigon. And from there he was taken um, on a plane that was waiting for him to take him to a hospital in Hawaii. But David's problems were just beginning. Because when he first went into surgery, the first of what would become dozens of operations... The surgical team had a major problem during that operation as they would cut away tissue that had been burned or torn by the grenade. The phosphorus underneath would hit the oxygen in the, oxy- in the operating room and it, again it would, it would come to fire, it would ignite. They were afraid the oxygen used in the surgery would explode. It was a very dangerous situation, not just for David, but for everyone involved. Incredibly, David survived that operation And he was then taken to a ward that held the most severe burn and injury cases from the war. Lying on his bed, he said his head was the size of a basketball from all the swelling. He knew that he presented a pretty gruesome picture. He had once been a very handsome man. He knew he had nothing now to offer his wife or anyone else because of his appearance. He felt more alone and more worthless than he had ever felt in his life. But David wasn't alone in that room. There was another man who had been wounded in Vietnam and was also in in really bad shape. He had lost an arm and a leg, and his face had just been torn up, very badly torn and scarred. As David was recovering from his surgery, this other man's wife arrived from the States. When she walked into the room, she took one look at her husband, and she became nauseated. And she took off her wedding ring. She put it on the table next to his bed. And she said, I'm so sorry, but I didn't sign up for this. 
There's no way I could live with you looking like that. And with that, she walked out the door and walked out of his life. He could barely make any sounds through his torn throat and his mouth, but that soldier, David said, wept and shook for hours. Two days later, that soldier died. This poor, wounded soldier, knowing that his wife saw no value in him, that knowing that was more terrible than any of the wounds that he had been suffering from. It blew away his last hope that someone somewhere could find some value in him, some worth in him, because he now knew how the world would perceive him. Three days later, David's wife arrived. After watching what had happened with the other soldier, he had no idea what kind of reaction she would have toward him, and he said he was actually dreading her coming. His wife was a strong Christian. She came in the room. She took one look at him. She came over, and she kissed him on the only place on his face that wasn't bandaged. And in a very gentle voice, she said, Honey, I love you. I'll always love you. And I want you to know that whatever it takes, whatever the odds, we can make it together. And she hugged him where she could to avoid disturbing his injuries, and she stayed with him for the next uh, several days. Watching what had happened with the other man's wife and seeing his own wife's love for him gave David tremendous hope and strength. More than that, her understanding and accepting him greatly reinforced his own faith and his own relationship with the Lord. In the weeks and months that followed, David's wounds very slowly but steadily healed. It took dozens of operations and months of agonizing recovery. But today, miraculously, David can see and hear and live a normal life. On national television, David made an incredible statement. He said, I am twice the person I was before I went to Vietnam. For one thing, he said, God has used my suffering to help me feel other people's pain and to have an incredible burden to reach people for him. The Lord has let me have a worldwide positive effect on people's lives because of what I went through. And then he said this. He said, I wouldn't trade anything I've gone through for the benefits my trials have had in my life, on my family's life, and on countless teenagers and adults I've had the opportunity to influence over the years. God used the trials in this man's life to reach so many others who were going through trials of their own. (coughs) Peter tells us that our faith is strengthened by our trials, that we grow closer to God. Peter describes their faith by saying that even though they don't see Christ, they believe in him and they love him. Jesus had told Thomas that a week after his resurrection, he told Thomas, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Friends, that describes us, right? Any of you see Christ face to face? We have not seen, yet we believe. We have a precious faith from God and in God that is made stronger through times of trial and suffering in our lives. 
See, but Peter doesn't just leave us with that message hanging there. No, he goes on to say that because we believe in the one that we haven't seen, that we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We talked about joy during the Advent season. We looked at the difference between happiness and joy, and that happiness all depends on our circumstances. But the, true, but the joy, true joy, comes through faith in Christ. Looking back on that story about David and his wife, we can see the difference between happiness and true joy. The other soldier's wife came in and saw him laying there. She didn't see any way that she could go on being happily married to him because of the way he looked and the things that he had lost. Her happiness was all predicated on the physical, material part of their relationship. And because that had changed, she walked away and left her husband sadly with no hope for a future because neither of them knew the Lord. And David saw that happen and he was afraid. He was afraid that his wife might react the same way when she saw him and he wasn't sure he'd be able to handle that. But David's wife was a believer in Jesus Christ and she knew the difference between happiness and true joy. And when she came in, she showed that difference in her attitude and her faith. Now, was she happy that her husband was in the condition that he was in? No, I'm sure she wasn't. None of us would have been happy about that. But she had joy in the fact that her husband was still alive and that they still had a future together as long as they trusted in the Lord for that future. And that's exactly what Peter is telling us here in this passage. He's saying that, yes, you may have had to go through some times of trial. In fact, you may still be going through those trials now. But if you will allow the Lord to work through those trials, you're going to come out ahead. You're going to be stronger in your faith and you will be a better witness for the Lord because of the joy that you can then share with others who may be going through the same kind of trials that you're going through. And why can any of us have this inexpressible and glorious joy? Peter says that it's because we are receiving the goal of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. And friends, isn't that really what it's all about? Peter doesn't say that the goal of our faith is to be happy. But that's what many people today seem to think it is. But it's not. The goal of our faith is that one day we will be with the Lord in heaven, seeing face to face the one whom we haven't seen but still believe in. We'll be in the place that the Lord has prepared for us, just as he promised us in John chapter 14. The troubles and trials of this world will be left behind, and we will be with the Lord forever. That is the ultimate goal of our faith. But while we're still living here on this earth, friends, there is another goal to our faith. And that is that we are made more and more like Jesus each and every day. So that we can be the witnesses he has called us to be. So that we can share the joy that we have found with those who so desperately need it in their lives too. And we grow closer to Christ. 
by remembering that living hope we have through faith in the resurrected Jesus. We grow closer to Christ by looking forward to that promised inheritance that is ours through faith in Christ. We grow closer by allowing the Spirit of God to work in us and through us as we go through life's trials, knowing knowing that our faith is refined and we develop perseverance as we go through those trials. All the while trusting that God will bring us through the other end stronger and better prepared to be his witnesses as we embrace that inexpressible and glorious joy that's ours because we are receiving the goal of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Are you struggling with trials today in your lives? Is our church struggling with any trials today? We're going to have our meeting in just a little bit uh, downstairs. You're all welcome to come and attend. As we meet, as we go through this next week, let us remember the hope that we have, the inheritance that's ours, the promise of God that he will walk with us through anything that he takes us through this year. And may we have that inexpressible and glorious joy as we meet And as we head into this new year of ministry together, because because we know the one whom we haven't seen, and we're confident in his wonderful provision for us. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, you are so good to us. We are sinful people in need of a Savior. Yet you looked upon us in our sin. And Romans 5.8 says that, that, that while we were still sinners, Jesus, you came to die for us. Thank you that you didn't need us to do anything, but that you died for us out of your love for us, out of your wonderful mercy and grace that you've shown in so many ways, but mostly by going to the cross for our sins. Thank you for the hope we have in you, a living hope, because you conquered death. Thank you for the promise of the inheritance we have with you and the promise that that you are here with us and will walk with us through any trial of life, Lord. And that if we put our trust in you and walk with you through those, Lord, we will come out in the end refined and stronger in our faith. It's not always easy, Lord, but help us to put that trust in you because you alone are the only one who is worth putting our trust in. We can't depend on ourselves, Lord. So we depend on you. We lay ourselves at your feet. Put ourselves in your hands and trust you, Lord, as we move forward. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.